Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country. Every week, I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Our cases this week are about spouses accused of killing their spouses. A wife in Georgia is found murdered, her body dismembered, and found scattered on a hunting property. Well, she's finally been identified, and her husband has been arrested in connection with her death. But for months, police did not know who the woman was because apparently she was never reported missing. So investigators had to use her DNA and genealogy sites to try and ID her. Turns out her husband was an officer in a naval court, but based on the arrest warrant, he's no gentleman. But first, a grieving widow and mother of three who wrote a children's book about coping with grief is now charged with killing her husband, the father of those children, you know, the ones who are grieving. Police in Utah say the wife made her husband a cocktail, a Moscow mule, allegedly laced with fentanyl. We're recording this on Wednesday, May 17th of 2023. Our guest today is Gerald Griggs, a criminal defense attorney who also handles a lot of civil rights cases out of Atlanta, Georgia. He's a very busy man because we know he's got a meeting with big time senators. And so he's got a hard out today. We're just happy you're here, Gerald, because trying to get you on the show is like a moving target. Well, I'm excited to be here with you, Anna. It's always a pleasure. And yes, I am very busy, but never too busy uh, to not talk about true crime. So I'm here. Let's let's jump right into it. All right, let's. Okay, our first case has really all the ingredients for one of those lifetime movies. If what police are saying is true, Gerald, police in Utah say that a woman who wrote a book about grief following her husband's death is the one who allegedly killed him. Okay. You can't make this stuff up, right? You just, you just can't. No, it's straight out of a movie, straight out of lifetime, straight out of own, uh, you know, who would have thought that a wife would poison her husband, but that seems to be what the police are saying. Yep. And the person charged here is 33-year-old Corey Richens. Now, police say that she killed her 39-year-old husband, Eric Richens. Eric was found dead in the couple's bed, 
back in March of 2022. So more than a year ago, Eric died of a fentanyl overdose, which police say the wife put in his drink. Now, although he died more than a year ago, she has only now been charged in this case. Now, here's what I find, you know, really interesting. You always love to hear people in their own words. And I'm always very curious when the person who speaks on camera or does TV interviews ultimately ends up being charged or at least suspected in a case. It's, you know, the kind of stuff that defense attorneys probably don't like. Just be quiet. Do not say a word. Absolutely. You should be quiet. I mean, you know, exercise your right to remain silent. And and typically those uh, type of statements come back to haunt you. Well, this one we cannot get enough of because here's what happened. One month before she was arrested, you know police were watching this, Corey went on TV to promote this new book of hers, which is all about coping with grief, okay? I want to play a clip from Good Things Utah. That's the ABC station that has this show, and I want you to hear from the wife in her own words. Corey, I want to start with your story. What happened in your personal life? So my husband passed away unexpectedly last year. So it's March 4th was a one year anniversary for us. And um, he was 39. It completely took us all by shock. Yes, no doubt it took everyone by shock, especially when one month after that interview, Corey ends up getting arrested and charged with her husband's murder. You just can't make this stuff, this stuff up, Gerald. The script writes itself and, and you know, typically, um, these type of cases don't end well um, when you're out there doing TV interviews, when there's a possibility you might be the prime suspect, because many times law enforcement just gives you enough time to tie the noose around your own neck. So uh, it's very unfortunate. And, and you know, I, I look forward to, to hearing more facts of this. But, you know, you really shouldn't write a book. You really shouldn't do interviews. You really should just focus if, if you truly are grieving on grief and not profit. So what happened here? Well, investigators say that context is everything in this case. So I always like to look at cases chronologically if we can, because it helps people figure out what was going on at the time and what possible red flags there were, because there were a few in here. But again, she is charged, presumed innocent. And so, you know, we're hearing this from the police investigators, and also we're hearing from the victim's family and all of this to fill in the pieces. And so this is where the information is coming from. So the couple reportedly had some financial disputes and were allegedly arguing on the night that he died. They were arguing around the purchase of a $2 million property, which Corey wanted to flip. She was in real estate. And apparently Eric thought it was the kind of deal they might lose money on and he didn't want to go through with the deal. So supposedly that's what was going on hours before he died. A little bit on the couple here. So Eric and Corey had been married for nine years. They have three boys. Eric had a successful stone and masonry business and the couple liked to flip houses. That was what Corey liked to do. Now, according to the Salt Lake Tribune, the couple had all sorts of financial issues. Now, this is all coming from Eric's family which is very important. But then again, Gerald, a lot of times family members do have access to information, financial records. So we cannot discount what the family's saying here. No, we can't. And it gives context to the possible motive. 
And as you said earlier, everyone's presumed innocent to proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. But you also have to make sure that during the course of the investigation, you look for all of the circumstances that could lead to a person being the prime suspect. So Eric's family, they claim that Corey may have been taking money secretly from their bank accounts to bolster her real estate career. The family claims that Corey took about $100,000 out and then charged more than $30,000 to Eric's credit cards. Now, this is where I would say, and I always find this so interesting, Gerald, when married couples don't seem to realize that the money's gone, especially if money's in joint accounts, we're going to get to a point where apparently it may not have been. That's the part I always find interesting. It's like, how do you not know that $100,000 is missing? Well, sometimes you don't check every um, every account. And, and like you said, it doesn't seem that they had a joint account. And so this may have been money that, you know, secretly she was, you know, ferreting off into other accounts. And she may have only been taking a thousand here, a thousand there. And so you may not notice it over time. But once you get to that hundred thousand dollar mark, you know, at that point, you may notice it's gone. Eric's family also says that Corey allegedly borrowed $250,000 by allegedly forging power of attorney documents. So they are making those claims that there was some fraudulent business deals going on here where Corey was allegedly accessing money that she shouldn't have. All right, that's part of it. Now, here's the other thing. So friends and family say that Eric told them the following. Again, this is what they're saying. And if the police can produce evidence of this, it goes beyond he told me, she told me, correct? Exactly. If they can back it up with with documents and um, records, business records, then they can substantiate this because right now it would just be hearsay. uh, But you have to make sure that you can corroborate the hearsay. Correct. So this is what family and friends are saying. Eric shared that he thought that his wife tried to poison him, specifically on Valentine's Day before his death. That Now, we've had several cases on the podcast where we have had spouses who thought that they were being poisoned by their spouse, didn't leave the relationship, and what happens? They, they end up dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So people, this is a warning right now. This is like our third case. If you truly suspect your partner, your business partner, your significant other, your spouse is poisoning you, you must get out of this relationship or move or get out. That seems very simple. Listen, if he or she is trying to kill you, they don't love you. Leave the relationship. There we go. Family therapy from Gerald Griggs, everyone. (laughs) Because being an attorney also means being a therapist part time. We are counselors at law. End of the heart. End of the heart. Now, here's the other thing. Family, Eric's family says that she, Erica, did not know that Eric secretly changed his will before he died to make sure that Erica was not the beneficiary and that she didn't know that. What does that tell you? That tells you he did strongly suspect she was trying to kill him. And instead of leaving, he made sure that he took precautions that she wouldn't benefit from his death. What would have been better is for him to leave and not die. Correct. 
Absolutely. I agree with you there. But, you know, and this is the thing that we can never figure out. But when you have three children involved, you have a family, um, what, you know, I would say you take the kids and you run and you go to the police and you tell them what your fear is and, and you know, see where it goes from there. But to just simply stay is crazy. Yeah, it, it doesn't make sense. But again, you know, having three, three children, you may have been thinking about the children, uh, but you, know, you have to you know, make sure that you make the right decisions, not only for them, but for yourself. And if you thought enough that she was trying to kill you, that you would change your will, you should have contacted police and got a divorce attorney. Yes, absolutely. Now, according to the Daily Mail, in January of 2022, remember he died in March, okay? So beginning of the year. So two months before his death, Corey allegedly made sure that she was the beneficiary of his life insurance policy through work. So family and friends are claiming that she went online into the HR system or wherever you find this stuff. You all know all these portals that we have when we work and whatever. Okay. She goes in there. She makes sure that she's the beneficiary of the life insurance policy. But the reports are, that Eric got notified because anytime you change your status, you change anything, you know, in any of your pensions or you get an email. Sometimes you even get a letter in the mail telling you, was this you who made this change on this day? And he gets an email alerting him. So now he knows. So he's got another piece of the puzzle that is alerting him that she's making sure she's the beneficiary. Of course, then Eric changes it back because she's not the one who's going to get the notification about that. So she thinks she's very smart, according to to his family, but she ultimately is not the beneficiary. Okay, so there's more here. So we talked about how he thought that he had been poisoned on Valentine's Day, got violently ill after eating something that she prepared. Um... We're going to get into the details of that. But now I want to go to the eve of his, the the evening before he died. So the couple, they were fighting, according to all reports and according to the police. And Corey wanted to finish this deal, this $2 million mansion that they wanted to buy and flip. And Eric said, no, we're going to lose money on this. So then this is what Corey tells police, that at 9 p.m. that night, March 3rd, 2022, she and Eric celebrated the closing of this deal. So from her perspective, no problem, she tells police. We're celebrating that we're going to close this deal. She allegedly told authorities that she made Eric a Moscow mule as part of their celebration and that she prepared the drink in the kitchen before bringing it up to her husband who was in bed in their bedroom and that he drank the Moscow mule while sitting in the couple's bed. I, of course... You know, for me, it's all about logic. Who drinks an icy cold Moscow mule in March in Utah when it's cold in bed? That's what I would say. You know, why not a hot cocoa? (laughs) And why is she not drinking to celebrate as well? You know, the first thing you would think is if she's preparing a drink for celebration, there would be two. And it would definitely be a warm drink if it's Utah in the wintertime. That's what I would think. But, you know. Everybody celebrates their own way. This, of course, is not a crime by any means. It's just one of those things I find interesting. Okay, Corey claims that she gave her husband Eric the drink and that she went to bed. She claims that one of the children had a nightmare. She wakes up, she goes to their bed, and she fell asleep in the son's bed. And then when she woke at three in the morning and said, oh, 
what am I doing here in my son's bed? And all of us who are parents, we know we've always fallen asleep in our kids' beds and we're like, oh my God, where are we, right? You know, I have to make lunch. Um, She goes back to her bedroom, she says, and that's when she finds that her husband is cold to the touch and calls 911. Okay, this to me is very interesting. Tell me what you think about this counselor. According to published reports, Corey said, and she's telling the 911 operator that I'm giving him CPR. I'm trying to save his life. But when the paramedics arrived, they noted that Eric had blood in his mouth. And so they found it very hard to believe she could have tried that form of resuscitation. I mean, if he's already cold to the touch, you're not going to try to perform CPR. And then, of course, the blood is a telltale sign um, that no CPR, no attempts at recitation actually occurred. Uh, so there are already issues with her statement um, of the chronological order of things and the evidentiary proof of what she is trying to relay to law enforcement. Eric is dead at the scene. And this is the part that honestly that I find so suspicious. Again, this part is not a crime, but it really says a lot to me. Okay, the man is dead. Eric is dead. The next day after his death, according to friends and family, Corey throws a party, this is the widow, to celebrate the sale of that project going through. Nothing, some, says, nothing says grief like a party. <laughs> it's, I think that's a chapter in her book, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, it, I, I, it defies logic. You know, you, 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 you know, you've been with um, your husband for a substantial amount of time. You have children. You, you built a life together. He passes away the day before. And now you're partying to celebrate um, the business uh, deal that he was not in favor of, that you allege that he celebrated with you on the night that uh, he drank the Moscow mule and subsequently succumbed to that. It's a lot of issues, a lot of red flags here. Yeah. And, you know, I think we could say, well, is it possible that let's just say, you know, the police are wrong here. Okay, let's just say that. And that he really was in favor of this project. And they had, as a couple, they had worked hard to get to this point. And when the deal closes, because the deal goes through, which I find hard to believe that it would still go through if the man is dead, you know, one of the, but okay, maybe there's something in the contract there. And that maybe at that moment when you feel like, wow, I finished this project, I did it for us, and maybe you hold a glass up and you just, you honor the moment and you honor the man, but that's not what this is according to friends and family. No, and I mean, I'm sure you had witnesses at the party that said that it didn't turn into, you know, for all lack of a better term, a wake or some Mm -hmm. type of celebration of life. Uh, This was an actual party and no one who loves their spouse is going to throw a party the day after their spouse passed away. So there are a lot of red flags. And of course, we can always play devil's advocate or defense attorney. I'm a defense attorney all day long, but there are some serious concerns here uh, that are pointing in one direction. Yes. And don't forget that when she went on TV to sell her grief book and we just saw that clip, she's going on and on about how sudden it was. And it was so shocking. Well, I guess the shock wore off, you know, in a few hours for you to be able to pull off the deal and to once again, celebrate. Now, the autopsy is very interesting. And here I'm going to ask you, Gerald, if maybe this would, you know, point things in a different direction, not necessarily murder, because the autopsy revealed that Eric died from orally ingested 
an overdose of fentanyl and that he had five times the lethal dose in his system. Investigators use this information then to serve search warrants on the home, also for all their digital devices, the computers, all of that stuff. So I would say to you, Eric, at this point in the investigation, to overdose on fentanyl, isn't it possible that this was an accident? And I have no idea if this was something that they were using drugs. I I have no idea. But as investigators and as a defense attorney, doesn't this couldn't this look more accident than murder? Yeah, I mean, there's an argument uh, that this was an accidental overdose, uh, but you're going to have to uh, substantiate that it's accidental. I mean, you don't have to prove anything in the criminal case, but the jury is going to want to hear a different side. So you would say there are witnesses um, that say, you know, he had a prescription for fentanyl or he had access to fentanyl using the digital data or, or something like that to say this probably was an accidental overdose or something like that. You got to give the jury an alternate hypothesis, save the guilt of the defendant. So I think that's a road that they might go down. But the other circumstantial evidence is going to be hard to overcome, namely the business dealings, the attempts to transfer money or transferring money, the changing of uh, the life insurance policy. Those are going to be issues uh, that you have to address if you go the accidental overdose route. So because of the warrant, um, this is what's interesting. Remember, she said that she went to her child's bed. She fell asleep because the child was having a nightmare. Well, now, as a result of the warrants that they have, they're able to look at phones, phone activity. And police are claiming that Corey told them she left her phone charging at the bed stand when she went to care for the child and fell asleep for a few hours. However, police say that Corey's phone data, they claim, shows that her phone was unlocked several times during those hours. There was movement suggesting that she was moving around at the time that she said she was asleep in the child's bed. And also police claim that at in this time period when she said she was asleep, that there were multiple text messages that were coming and going at that time. That pesky digital um, data and digital mm. evidence that can refute any statements. And that's why you should not give statements. Um, if there was activity on the phone and it's her phone and it has to have an unlock code, there are probably only two people that have the unlock code and one of them's dead. Uh, so, again, that's why it's important not to give statements. And with the growth of technology, you know, people can geolocate phones and typically the phone is wherever you are. So if you're moving and you're not asleep, you're going to have to explain that to a jury. Yeah. So things are definitely suspicious, definitely suspicious. Now, in the search, here's the other stuff that they found in the phone records. This part I find fascinating. I, I don't you'll tell me where it goes toward evidence. So police claim and this is all in the court records. They claim that there were multiple messages going back and forth between Corey. This is over a period of time with someone who was identified only as with the initials CL, who made multiple, um, I guess she did multiple business dealings with this CL over controlled substances. And we'll get into that now. Again, 
According to interviews and according to the court records, the police say that Corey met up with CL to buy drugs on at least three occasions. And these purchases seem to line up with incidents, such as the Valentine's Day poisoning, allegedly, and ultimate death. So sometime between December of 2021 and February of 2022, Corey allegedly texted CL requesting pain medication for a client with a back injury. Seems to me that your client with the back injury could maybe go to the doctor herself or himself. Absolutely. And just a thought. Yeah. Why are you transacting drug payments on an iPhone or an Android? Not a good idea. Never Uh, good. If somebody has a back injury, they just go to a doctor, get a prescription and go to the pharmacy and get the pharmaceuticals. They don't need a middle person. No, no, certainly not someone in the real estate business (laughs) without a medical license. But okay. so according to the uh, court records, CL got her the hydrocodone pills and the deal took place at a house that was currently being flipped by Corey. Again, all of this is coming from the court records. Weeks later, Corey allegedly contacted CL for something stronger, citing, this is quote, some of the Michael Jackson stuff. Well, Mm -hmm. that man was taking propofol that was being administered by a medical doctor. Okay, not supposed to be happening in someone's home and not for the purposes of sleep, but I don't know what she's thinking here. No, you you definitely don't don't want to um, get those type of very strong narcotics without a doctor or a doctor actually being the one uh, that administers that. And even when a doctor administered it, it ended up in a criminal uh, allegation and a conviction. So, yeah, that's that's troubling. It is. So according to CL, Corey asked explicitly for fentanyl Mm. on February 11th. CL obtained 15 to 30 fentanyl pills from a dealer, which CL then sold to Corey for $900. Two days later on Valentine's Day, Eric becomes seriously ill after eating a sandwich prepared by his lovely wife. Eric, after eating this, broke out in hives, had trouble breathing. Eric allegedly used a combination of his son's EpiPen and Benadryl to stop the reaction and then reportedly passed out for hours, but survived. Remember, this is the incident that he said, he turned to someone and said, wow, I think she may have poisoned me. I think so. It was a good thing Eric knew how to use an EpiPen. I mean, who who would have thought to use Benadryl and EpiPen to revive you from a potential poisoning? So Eric, you know, has to have had some type of um, pharmaceutical training or something that's not in the common course of, of, you know, people's normal activity. Uh, but wow, uh, that that's, that's wow. So he survives this, right? Eric survives this, but sadly he would not live another day because there would be allegedly, according to police, another attempt on his life. And one thing we know for sure is that he is dead. I mean, but how and it, and if he was murdered is a whole other investigation. So, About two weeks after that Valentine's Day incident, Corey allegedly contacted CL once again. 
This time for more fentanyl pills, $900, according to police, CL got another round of pills on February 26. Corey allegedly told CL to leave the pills in the outdoor fire pit of a house that she was flipping and that she reportedly left cash for this deal. Eric was found dead of a fentanyl overdose six days later on March 4th. That sounds like a drug deal to me. You know, we're going to pay in some covert manner. I'm going to pick it up. Uh, from a, a house that's not people not living in the house. And, you know, we're just going to do this in a way that doesn't seem like the ordinary course of business to buy pharmaceutical drugs. But, Gerald, isn't it possible that Corey could say, yeah, OK, I bought the drugs. Yeah, I'm not going to deny it. And yeah, we were taking the drugs. And sadly, he died. She could make that. She could say that. And again, that would be a, a strong defense. But for the circumstantial evidence that you were looking into his life insurance policies and and making other uh, financial transactions and the family would come in and testify you were having financial trouble. So it could go either way there, uh, but it is a defense. Isn't it also perhaps an even stronger defense if she says, yes, maybe I did take that money. I took that money because I am a drug addict and I had to pay for this And I didn't want my husband to know what was going on and how bad it was. I mean, she could say that. Well, then how did your husband end up with the drug overdose if you were the drug addict? She could now speak for the dead and say, well, he had a problem, too, except mine was worse. And that's why I was taking the money. I mean, it is. It's defensible. It's defensible only in the sense that, sadly, many of us do know people with serious addictions, and we know the lengths that they go to and the things that they do against their loved ones, such as stealing, right? Taking money, all these things. I am not saying that that's her defense because there's a lot of information that's missing here, but Mm -hmm. it certainly is plausible. And again, I'm not defending. I'm just simply asking, um, you know, how strong do you think this case is against her? I think that it's a strong circumstantial case without a confession. And I think that, you know, 12 individuals are going to have to sort it out. And the problem for the prosecution is what she's saying is viable. And she doesn't have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that it happened the way she said it happened. They have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt it didn't. Yeah. Well, and there are a lot of things going on. I mean, because we're going to get in into she's not only got a criminal case that she's defending herself against, she is now contesting the estate, the husband's estate and will and all of that. She's contesting it as if, you know, it was taken from her. And again, that's from her perspective. So, you know, think about it. It's been a year the authorities have now have search warrants. They're finding these text messages with someone named CL who apparently is communicating with them and giving them his or her version of events. So they have some, you know, information coming in that way. They're going through the finances. And this is what's taking a year. Meanwhile, she is busying herself writing this book to help children who are grieving, which to me, again, this is the moral crime here. This is the moral crime. So she's very busy with her book. She writes this book called, Are You With Me? Question mark. Okay. It's one year after Eric's death. And as we said, she appeared on that television show in Utah, Good Things Utah on ABC4. Okay. I want to 
I want to play yet another clip because, you know, in the first clip she talked about, oh, what a shock it was that her husband died. And this next one is about helping children with grief, including her own. Let's play the clip. We have three little boys, 10, 9, and 6. And, um, you know, we kind of, my kids and I kind of wrote this book on the different emotions and grieving processes that we've experienced last year and, you know, hoping that it can kind of help other kids, you know, um, deal with this and kind of, you know, find happiness some, some way or another. It's really amazing to listen to this interview now, Gerald, given everything that's happened since she did the interview. Yeah. I mean, you know, since the, the events that have transpired since the interview, it calls into question everything that she's saying. And, and so um, it's going to be hard to sort this out with an eye towards it's a possibility that you cause the grief that your child, your children are now going through and what actually really happened to your husband. Uh, so uh, it just brings out more questions and, and things that have to be settled in a courtroom. And it really is troubling. She is charged with killing the father of her children Again, innocent until proven guilty, but then writes this book about helping those three children grieve the loss of their father. If she is the one who is responsible for his death, that is one twisted plot. Yes, and it's going to make for one great lifetime movie. Yes, it will. All right. So the book itself has been removed from the marketplace. What a surprise. (laughs) Nobody wants this book. Corey Richens is being held in the Summit County Jail. Her next court date is scheduled for May 19th. And this aside, as I gave a little tease about, she's in the middle of a massive legal battle with her husband's family because he changed the will and he made sure that the beneficiary of his life insurance policy was not the wife as she apparently went in there, and she's arguing. And so everything is stuck in probate court because everything's being challenged. And so the family's saying she's not going to get a dime. And so Corey and her team are trying to get the probate, the civil court to pause because she's now been arrested and charged with murdering the man who everyone is fighting over the estate. And the family's like, you know, forget that lady. We're going forward. You deal with your criminal parts. What happens here? What what happens civilly? Well, civilly, it's, it's important for her to pause it because she'd be open to depositions to be deposed. And now you have a even a more uh, perilous journey because, you know, even though a person cannot be forced or compelled to give testimony against themselves in order to prove her case on the civil side, she's going to have to present evidence, which would be her. So uh, she definitely needs a pause. And I can understand the family saying, no, we don't want to pause because we want to know what actually happened. So it's a catch 22 here when civil mixes with a criminal matter and you have different burdens of proof and the need to produce evidence to meet your burden in civil court. Wow. I wonder what the judge is going to do here. That's really a mess. I mean, I don't I don't know. Part of me feels like, how can you move forward with the will if if the person contesting it is in prison? I have no idea. I don't know what you do. And then what does that? And then there are three kids, right? Father dead, mother in jail. 
they have to be taken care of. So I suppose it's, couldn't the judge possibly make an accommodation at least to make sure that the children financially are being taken care of? Yes. And of course, I don't practice, you know, wills and trusts, but, you know, from law school, uh, there's a doctrine of unclean hands. And so it would be my understanding that probably it should go at least temporarily to the children in a trust until all of the other matters are resolved. So complicated, this case. Yes, it, very, very complicated and will make for a great movie. Shameless plug to Lifetime. Need to pick this one up. Okay. Our next case is out of Georgia, where a husband has been arrested and charged with his wife's murder. For reasons which have not been made public or explained, the wife was apparently not reported missing. So when these human remains were found scattered at a hunting lodge, it took authorities months to figure out who this person was. So they had to gather DNA from the dismembered body parts and then run that through uh, genealogy sites, trying to figure out, okay, who is this person? They even made composites, sketches based on the bone structure, trying to figure out, you know, age and who it might be which is really surprising to me. And, you know, I was digging around yesterday. Um, I found a thread on Reddit you know, where some people said that they knew the victim and how surprised that they were that she hadn't been reported missing. There has to be a reason why the authorities are not explaining that component of this, because that to me is a mystery. Absolutely. And it means that that's a lead that they're following up on, that they don't want to burn the lead. So that's why they're holding that close to the vest. Yeah, because everyone's asking. I mean, people just don't disappear, especially if you are the child of, you have friends, you have relatives, you're active in in church, plus you have a husband. It would be, and it's not like we're talking about a day or two. We're talking about months here. So uh, I am very, very curious about that. So 40-year-old Nicholas Cassities, also known as Nicholas Killian Stark, is accused of murdering his wife, 40-year-old Mindy Mibane Cassidy's, and scattering her body parts around a property in a Georgia hunting club, which apparently straddled two different counties. Police used her DNA to try and figure out her identity. Now, Mindy and Nicholas had married on October 9th of 2016 in Leeburg, Virginia. The couple moved from Alexandria, Virginia to Savannah. Now, there's some question whether she was actually alive at the time that the couple moved, but we don't know. So a little bit about them because it's kind of important because of what he he particularly does. So Mindy received her BA from Armstrong State University as well as an MA in Public and International Affairs from Virginia Tech. Nicholas graduated with a BA from Boston University and his um, JD from Northeastern University. Okay, this is important. At the time of their marriage, Nicholas was reportedly pursuing a master's of law at Georgetown University. But here, when they got married, Nicholas was working as a reserve judge advocate for the U.S. Navy. So this whole, do you remember that TV show JAG? I, could, I, I never could understand what JAG stands for. He, was, he rose to the position of lieutenant commander, and that all ended on August of 2019. All the Navy says is that's the separation date. I don't know what that means. What is, what, what is a JAG officer? Is that or a judge, that's a very important position, right? 
Yeah, typically they are lawyers in the um, in, in the Navy. And so they participate in, in the naval court, uh, naval military court. And so he was a high ranking uh, um, legal official in, in the Navy. And so the separation that that seems curious, that seems it means something happened because you you typically aren't separated. You are discharged or or you complete your commission or something like that. So that's definitely very curious of how he he left that position. Yeah. Very interesting. We don't know more about it, but we do know that this is someone who schooled in the law, you know, and certainly had risen to a level of prominence within the naval court system. So back to Mindy here. Okay. So Mindy, her remains were discovered by hunters on December 2nd, 2022, and her body was scattered all over this, the Portal Hunting Club near Riceboro, Georgia, which is about 40 miles from the couple's home in Savannah. Authorities believe she may have been left there maybe even a week earlier. Initially, Mindy's remains could not be identified, so she was classified as a Jane Doe again, with them uh, making several appeals to the media through information, composites, age, all, you know, describing some of the clothes that she was wearing, but it didn't lead to anything like they didn't get any leads so she was truly a mystery here and then um you know so there were a few rounds a few composites so i'm I'm gonna get to the point here where um they go to the genealogy sites and they find a family tree that they think is close they go to one of the parents who they think could be her parent they do a dna swab and it's a match so now remember Found in December, it's now May 11th, and Mindy's remains are positively identified. The very next day, they go and arrest her husband in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Isn't that interesting? That that's like, boom, straight where they go. Very interesting, because currently we don't know how she died. So how are you arresting somebody for murder if we don't know the cause of death, and we just recently identified the person, and there's no missing person report, so... Definitely interesting. Yeah, I I think what's very possible is by the time they got to the tree, you know, police got to the tree and they know they're zeroing on a family. They're probably seeing in the tree. Hmm. Is any have you have you talked to so and so yet? You know, while they're waiting on the DNA results, I have a feeling at this point they were already they had an idea that she was a member of this family and who's in this family, who's married. When's the last time anybody talked to anybody? And she's not responding. So that is just my take on it. So um, he is awaiting extradition to Georgia on charges of malice murder, felony murder, aggravated assault, tampering with evidence and removal of body parts from the scene of death or dismemberment. His next court date will be May 19th, and he is expected to waive extradition. I know we are lacking a lot of details in this case, but that's because the authorities and the family have not been talking. So something, there's something more going on here. Yeah. I mean, simply from the charges, there are definitely more going on here. Namely, she was not killed from the charges. And from what I presume is in the warrants, she was not killed at that location. She was killed somewhere else and then moved and the body parts were dismembered and spread in that location. So there's clearly more evidence here. Uh, but we have to wait for um, his extradition and then ultimately his preliminary hearing uh, when they uncover what's in the warrant and give probable cause testimony. But there's more here um, that we have to ferret through. 
So we have a quick update now for all of you. You've been following this case. And of course, we're talking about Lori Vallow Daybell, the doomsdayer mom who was convicted on all counts of murdering her two children. We have covered this multiple times on the podcast. We simply want to tell you what the what the results were of this trial for those of you who were not following it that carefully. So Lori and her fifth husband, Chad Daybell, were both accused of murdering her two children, along with murder and conspiracy charges related to the mysterious death of Chad's late wife, Tammy, right? This is the woman who died in her sleep. She was, you know, quickly buried, you know, no one thought of anything. The the thing I love about the Lori Vallow Daybell case is that so many things were going on around her and her family and people were dying mysteriously, but because they were happening in different jurisdictions over a period of time, no one could step back and look at it and tie it all together. And this is the beginnings of that. Absolutely. This was a case we followed intently. I followed it intently. So many twists and turns. Of course, the doomsday cult part of it. Um, the, the issue with so many dead people. And um, I think something happened in, in Hawaii and then it happened over here. And none of the jurisdictions were communicating with one another until ultimately Tammy passed. Right. Right. And that made it possible for Lori to marry Chad. Chad. Right. And. Yeah. You know, and Lori, we've heard from so many family members and friends, like, you know, Lori had these theories about zombies and that the kids had been taken over by zombies, which is why she had to kill them, you know, and the drama in the courtroom. Oh, my God. When Lori Vallow said, oh, your honor, please don't make me listen to the horrific ways that the children died. I need to leave the courtroom. Give me a break, lady. You sit down and you listen. Yeah, I mean. We have to get to the bottom of the truth and you have a right to confront your accusers and listen to the evidence. So um, this was a very, very disturbing case that took years to get through. And ultimately, the jury made the decision. Yes. So uh, Lori Vallow's youngest son, J.J. Vallow, who was seven, and her daughter, Tylee Ryan, 16, were last seen alive, last seen alive September of 2019 before they were finally found buried in 2020, their remains were buried in the Idaho property owned by Chad Daybell. Oh, what a surprise. Look at this. Why do you bury why do you bury people in the backyard of your property? Because no one ever find them there. You know, <laughs> hey, let's bury them in the backyard. Nobody ever think to look back there. <laughs> it's crazy. Even the dogs go back there looking for stuff. I mean, come on now, the dog, people. The dog probably helped dig them up. Unbelievable. So prosecutors allege that the couple shared these extremist religious beliefs that they were to, to kind of rationalize their killings. Chad and Lori believed that the these young children were possessed by evil spirits, turning them into zombies. And in the closing arguments, prosecutors said, you know what? You know what the reason was? It wasn't zombies. It was sex, money, and power. I don't know. Craziness. It's all crazy. There were so many freaking delays in this case because of her competency, whether she was competent or not. You know what? Please. Okay. Finally, the trial goes through. There's weeks of testimony, 60 witnesses, all on the prosecution side. Explain this to me. The defense doesn't call a witness. The defense doesn't say anything. The defense just rests. There's no defense other than to say, well, the prosecution didn't reach their burden of proof. 
Well, when you don't have a case, sometimes that's what you argue and that you could not explain all of the things that were going on in this case. So you said to the jury, hey, listen, they didn't prove their case. And of course, the jury came back and said they did. Um, yes. Hello. Buried in the backyard. <laughs> How do you explain that? Oh, my gosh. It's just unbelievable. Well, after the jury deliberated, they found Lori guilty. Two counts of first degree murder, three counts of conspiracy for the deaths of her children, conspiracy to kill Tammy Daybell. She was also convicted of grand theft charges related to collecting the social security of the children in their benefit. I mean, it was just just a tangled mess. Anyway, her sentencing has not been scheduled yet, but she faces a life sentence on the conviction. That seems probable. She will never, ever leave prison. And then Chad Daybell's trial is next. I have a question for you. Do you think Chad Daybell will stand trial or do you think he tries to get a deal? Well, I think he's probably going to try to get a deal and say, you know, Lori planned it all. Uh, but I think the prosecution is going to proceed with the trial. And in this case, the only logical um, defense that, um, you know, Lori was going for is probably an appeal uh, on her mental competency. And that's maybe what her lawyers were looking to do. Uh, but this this was a disturbing case from the very beginning. Um, and I saw this conviction coming a mile away. Oh, we all did, because there were never any answers when the kids were missing and the grandparents are the ones who asked for the welfare check. And every time you're trying to find, you know, Lori, she's in a different jurisdiction. This, all the times that the authorities said you must present the children and right. And then they they get married. They go to Hawaii. Then I mean, where are the kids? The kids hadn't been seen in forever. Hadn't been seen in forever. I, I just it's a disgusting case. Um, I'm 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 really I'm, I'm, I'm sick to my stomach from this case. And there's a part of me that doesn't want to hear it anymore. Like, I just want her to go away. Go yeah. Away. Well, we at least going to have to hear it one more time. Because again, given the horrific nature of all of these killings, um, I think the prosecution is probably not going to offer Chad a deal. Yeah. Especially if he didn't help with Val with Lori's case. What value that, that, does he have? Exactly. That would have been the only reason why they would have given him a deal. Listen, you testify against Lori then we'll offer you something, you know, less than, you know, life without the possibility of parole. Yeah, it is time for our comment section. These are the crime cases you all are talking about on social media. And here's our producer, Will Updike. Hey, Will. Hey, how's it going, Anna? Good. Good to see you, Gerald. Good to see you, Will. All right. So this case, uh, we have a case of a doggone DUI. This case comes out of Springfield, Colorado, where a man had a rough time talking his way out of an arrest after he was pulled over for speeding and tried to blame the entire incident on his dog. So this happened just last Saturday. That's May 13th, around 1130 p.m. A Springfield Police Department officer did a traffic stop on a car that was traveling 52 miles per hour in a 30 mile per hour zone. If you know you're a little tipsy. Probably best to stick to the speed limit, just off the bat. Uh, but as the officer approached the driver, who they still have not identified, uh, he allegedly attempted to switch places with his dog, who was in the passenger seat. So 
The officer pulled the man over, reported he reportedly witnessed this entire seat exchange, you know, as they're coming up to the car or whatever. And the man allegedly claimed that he wasn't at the wheel, but he showed these clear signs of intoxication, the officer said. So when the officer asked him how much he had to drink, the driver flees uh, and the officer was able to apprehend him about 20 yards from the car. So he's tried (laughs) the dog switch. He's tried to get away. Nothing's really working here. Um, but according to, to to a statement from the police, which is really all we have on this case so far, the man apparently got lost while he was driving from Las Animas to Pueblo, Colorado, and he ended up in Springfield somehow. Uh, and police also learned that the alleged driver had two active warrants for his arrest out of Pueblo, Colorado there. So the Baca County Sheriff's Office arrived at the scene and they assisted with the suspect who was taken to the hospital. He was medically cleared to be held. Deputies booked him into the Baca County Jail on charges of driving under the influence of alcohol and or drugs, driving while ability impaired, driving under suspension, speeding 20 to 24 miles over the speed limit, resisting arrest, and of course, these two other outstanding warrants. Uh, now, the I, I kind of love the way that the Springfield Police Department wrapped this one up. They noted that the dog was placed in the care of an acquaintance of the alleged driver here uh, while its owner was in custody. And according to police, the dog does not face any charges and was let go with just a warning, uh, which, you know, you, you love you love a good happy ending. I, I'm glad the dog isn't facing any charges in this one. Um, I yeah, I don't know if you've done any defense in these sort of cases, Gerald, but I can't believe pointing the dog is, is is that strong of an option. It's not unless you've seen that viral image on TikTok of the dog driving the lawnmower. Uh, yes. so, oh, you know, or the Tesla. There's the dog. The Tesla. There's the dog. My question is, when he came up to the car, did the dog have his paws on the wheel? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, we actually got a comment about that. Brianna (laughs) had to know, can we please see the body cam footage, which I don't know if this will ever be released, but I would love to see a man trying to like move the dog over uh, over into this driver's seat. Um, You know, an interesting excuse for this one. April G said, well, instead of the dog ate my homework excuse, now it's the dog was driving officer, which, yeah, this is like in that line of of really pretty lame excuses unless of course yeah you have a tesla and maybe your dog can be behind the wheel i have no idea (laughs) anarchy never said sounds like the good boy wasn't the best driver but he's a mere doggo and doing the best he can which i'm yeah i I, you know i'm 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 glad the dog didn't face any charges he's super innocent in this one for all the stupid said nothing screams sober like i swear man the the dog drives me home all the time (laughs) i love this i i love like yeah how are you even in a scenario like where you think that this is going to work and that somehow yeah it's a normal thing for your dog to be driving you and then we got to end this on a pun as always tinky w said i was positive i would have gotten away with this doggone it which pretty good Pretty good, pretty good, pretty good. But yeah, I, I, like I said, just glad that the dog didn't face any charges in this one. Uh, and I will update everybody on our YouTube community page if we hear any more about this suspect. That is going to do it for this week's comment section. Thank you, everybody, for sending those in. As always, you can reach out to us on our YouTube community page. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, Snap- Snapchat, maybe. I don't know. Snapchat? Uh, but- <laughs> are we? We're not on Snapchat. No, we're what not on Snapchat. What decade is this? We're, what are we, 13? We're, we're, we're not on Snapchat. Uh, but uh, <laughs> you can reach out to us on all those other we're places. We're on TikTok. <laughs> we are on TikTok. We are on TikTok. That was what I was trying to think of. Uh, but, you know, I'm old. So uh, that is going to do it for this week's comment section. Thank you all so much. And I'll see you next week. Uh.
<laughs> a little programming note for everyone. I know that the last few weeks, all our episodes have been unbelievably dark. I mean, just like the worst. We've had like back-to-back -back episodes where children have been murdered. Next week, I promise everyone, we're getting a little break here. We're going to do a very special podcast on an incredible crime. It's got arrests. It's got a bust. It's got the IRS. It's got everything you can imagine. Fraud, scandal, everything but no one dies, okay? So I promise you next week we get a little reprieve from all the death and destruction that we have been covering because yes, it does become kind of heavy after a while. We need a break, right? All need a little break. <laughs> Gerald, thank you so much. We know that you are one of the busiest people out there. Where can people find you, follow you? Because you're always, you know, you're on top of everything, Gerald. Well, they can find me on all social media channels uh, at Attorney Griggs, A-T-T-O-R-N-E-Y-G-R-I-G-G-S on Instagram, Snapchat, uh, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, and uh, on Google. Uh, so please follow me. I love being on this show. It's great. Yes, the dog did do it, uh, but he got away with it. Oh, my God. I'm just glad that the dog was not injured while this person allegedly, right, was speeding through town, could have been intoxicated. Yeah. Thank goodness the dog was not injured. You can find me at Anna G News, Anna with one N. Um, I mostly do post about dogs and rescues. <laughs> a little bit about crime because I need a break in the rest of my life. You can get this episode along with all our episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Subscribe to our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. Uh, until next week, I'm your host, Anna Garcia. This is True Crime Daily, the podcast. And as we always say, don't do crime. <laughs> 